Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at the first 25 verses as we're continuing in our series called Witness as we look into the book of Mark. And I wanted to start off, and as you're turning to that, or in our church app, you have the notes there so you can kind of fill it in and follow along. I wanted to start off by asking a question. When was the first time you began to understand that you were passionate about something? Do you remember that time? I don't know. Some of you have incredible memories. Maybe since five years old, you remember. I'm passionate about this, even though I don't know how passionate you might have been. But just think about that for a moment. When was the first time you began to understand that you were passionate about something? Well, for me, uh, I was, I discovered, that's probably the best way I could put it, I discovered that I am passionate about opera. Now, I don't look like the opera type, but I am passionate about opera. And I discovered this when I was in college. A little bit into high school, but into college. Why? Well, one of the ways I discovered opera was that there were several movies that had opera in it that kind of caught my attention. Now, I don't know if these are some of the movies you should be watching, but anyway, A Pretty Woman, uh, A Room with a View. There were many of these movies that started coming out in the early 90s that had opera in it. So I'm like, what is that? And I began to do some study. I began to do some research and found out that, wow, this genre of music that I was not exposed to, it's an incredible genre that I, I began to enjoy, and I realized I'm very passionate about it. Do you know why? Because almost every single opera, it touches upon every single emotion that a human being can feel. Love, revenge, you know, all the good stuff, that emotion that you feel. And so that's why when you hear them go, you know, when you hear them sing, you realize, wow. They're actually singing very passionately from the emotion that they're feeling. And so I began to then discover, once I discovered that, I began to do more of the research, and I began to look at some of the different operas. I don't know what it is, but something from Italy, you know what I'm saying? That is the place where most of the good operas come from. So those of you who might know some classical stuff, you know some of these artists, Verdi, you know, you guys know Verdi? And one of the things I've noticed about him is that his operas are very, very passionate. Ida, and you have Othello, and then even from Puccini, you know, and you, when you think about Puccini and some of the Tosca and <laughs> Turdal, Mozart's A Marriage of Figaro, or Rosini, uh, Rosinini, right? You will notice that he has the barber, barber of Seville. Some of these incredible, iconic operas. And I want to kind of share a little story regarding my discovery of opera and my passion for opera. So as I began to discover, I, I got really excited because I found out that at the University of Illinois that there was going to be M. Butterfly. Now, those of you who don't know, uh, the famous opera is called Madame Butterfly. So one of the things that I 
quickly did was I was leading life group with now my wife. It was legit. I, I, you know, I kept it you know, clean and had accountability. Part two of the relationship seminar. Anyway, and so I told her, I go, we got to do this for a life group activity. She's like, huh? You know, because once again, who goes to an opera for a life group activity? Besides Pastor Seth, right? So I said, we got to watch this opera as a life group. It will change your life. I was sharing as if it's the gospel. I'm like, it will change your life. So much passion. And we got to see this. Because I knew Madam Butterfly. So I said, we got to watch this. And so we bought the tickets. Uh, it was cheap student price because they were performing at the University of Illinois. We purchased its tickets, and we all got tickets next to each other. So we're here, here's our whole life group. Let me show a picture. This is an old school picture of our life group. And some of you have seen this before. I'm way up in the front. I had a lot more hair then. Christina is way up on the top uh, on the left side there. And anyway, this was our life group. So all of us, uh, we, were sitting down, we were sitting together on the same row. And then the opera began to play. And I was watching this. And I know Madam Butterfly. And I'm thinking, this is a little bit weird. I'm like, there's some semblance of similarities to Madam Butterfly. So I, I checked the program again. And it said, M Butterfly. So I'm thinking to myself, yeah, Madam Butterfly. I kept on watching it, and all of a sudden, I realized in that moment that it wasn't the Madam Butterfly that I was expecting. And it came to a climax, or this point, within this whole show, where towards the end, the guy who was playing that part ripped off his clothes. <laughs> and I remember looking at the stage in shock, and for a brief moment, I was looking over to my life group members. And I was thinking to myself, this is the worst mistake of my life. Here I am, very passionate about something. I wanted to introduce it to our life group. We did it as a life group activity. But we found out that this M butterfly was not the Madam Butterfly, but they had a lot of overtures of erotic kind of stuff, and then all of a sudden, at the end, he ripped off his clothes. I mean, it was just his underwear. And it, once again, I was like shocked. So that's how it ended. I mean, if they kind of recovered, we were like, oh, that was good at the, at least that one, you know. But that's how it ended. And I remember just sitting there in utter, <laughs> what is the word? I wasn't, I wasn't even amazed. I was petrified. So I quickly turned to Christina and I said, I think we need to debrief. <laughs> Let's gather our life group together at one of the dorms that a lot of us were at. And I said, we need to sit down and we grabbed the lounge and we started debriefing. So here are the things that were going through my mind. I was open to Christina, but I was praying about somebody else. And so I was thinking to myself, what is she thinking? that I brought her to this opera, and it was a little bit R-rated. She's probably thinking, he's a pervert. <laughs> and then I was thinking about my members. 
And I was thinking to myself, they're probably thinking, oh, you're one of those leaders. I don't know. I'm like, so many things were going through my mind. I didn't even know how to handle the situation. So I just shared with them honestly, and I just said, hey, guys, I'm really sorry. That is not the Madam Butterfly that I studied. I'm very passionate about but I totally misread it, and it's something that's totally different, and that is not something that we expected. So I just tried to explain it, and they were so gracious to me, and we were able to pray together, Lord, forgive us, you know, <laughs> and moved on. I'm sharing this because here's something that I'm very passionate about, but even if you're passionate about something, when you have a certain context, and also when there are things that you don't know about, it could actually turn out really bad. And this is something that I've noticed with a lot of people in the church. You could say that you're very passionate about whatever it is that you're passionate about. But oftentimes, whatever you're passionate about, when it's centered around you and only you, that passion can actually implode you in your spiritual walk. I have seen so many people use in the name of, I'm passionate about X or Y or Z. And really what they're doing is they're covering up their self-centeredness and even their greed and their lust for things of this world. I think this is why we have to examine our hearts and understand. Let me, let me give you some examples so that you can understand what I'm trying to address here. Let's say you're passionate about making money. You're just gifted. And you can do it in your sleep. It's really easy. You're able to invest in things and you get a certain return. But when you use that passion just on yourself, then what happens is that no longer is that passion that God has given you in terms of experience for the greater kingdom of God and to be a blessing to other people. That passion can really help build your little kingdom. And I'm telling you right now, you're not going to experience the joy that God is talking about when you use the passion that He has given you for His kingdom. Let me give you another example. If you're passionate about, let's say, justice issues, you want to help other people. But the problem is that if it's not really centered on God and about His justice, then what's going to happen is that you're going to get very self-righteous. You're going to start judging everyone else, whether it's climate control or climate issues, whether it's, uh, you know, human trafficking. It could be any of these justice issues that oftentimes when you don't put it in the context of God's kingdom, then it's really about your own self-righteousness and your virtue signaling to other people. Look at how righteous and virtuous I am about this particular issue. But look at you. You're not. And that's where you get very judgmental. And I think today, as we talk about this, I want us to really focus in that the passion that God gives us, it really has to be conformed and transformed in such a way that it will be used for the glory of God. That is why we're continuing in our study in the book of Mark. And after today, we will be close to about 68, almost 70% done with this book. It's going to lead us all the way to the last week of Jesus' life where he dies on the cross and then he resurrects from the dead, which is the Passion Week. And it's going to go through Good Friday and on 
the 9th of April, which is going to be Easter. And so I really want to focus in on this idea of the passions we have. It really has to be transformed and conform to the passion of, of Jesus Christ. So that is my one thing. My one thing is this. Only Jesus can transform our passion so that it will conform to his passion. That it's only Jesus Christ who can transform our passion so that it will conform and in the likeness of who Jesus is and the passions that he has. So as I talk about this, I'm going to highlight two things in this multi-story passage. And they're kind of linked. And hopefully you can see that. Two things that we must remember as we understand that only Jesus can transform our passion so that it will conform to his passion. The first thing is this. We must possess the right expectations. That we must possess the right expectations. Now, as we come to chapter 11, we see that some of the events that is told occurs within a three to four day period. That's why this whole chapter is very important that will set things up for the last week of Jesus' life. So it's about Sunday and it's going to continue on till Wednesday in chapter 11 and chapter 12. And the first part of this chapter in verses 1 through 11 you will notice that it is focused on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his triumphant entry. So I want to talk a little bit about this as we are talking about how we must possess the right expectation when it comes to our passions. There are a couple of interesting things about this first part of the story. The first thing that I want you to see is the precision of Jesus. How precise Jesus is. Let's go ahead and read verse 1 through 6. This is what the Word of God says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Let me pause here, because once again, I want to talk about the precision of Jesus, as we have the right expectation. We notice that Jesus sends two of his disciples to go into the village to find this colt, or in some translation it says a donkey. And Jesus gives specific instructions, and in fact they're precise instructions about finding this colt or this donkey that is tied up and no one has ever written on it. He even goes as far as to explain that if someone asks you, why are you doing this? To tell them that the master or the Lord has a need of this and that he will return it immediately. It's almost as if Jesus knew what was going to happen before it happened. And partly because he's God and he was able to look into the future and prophetic in that way. And that, I believe, is the part of the sovereignty of God and how God works oftentimes 
in a very precise way. You know, when you live this Christian life long enough, you're going to come to the realization nothing is by chance. Nothing is by coincidence. That's why I keep on saying don't use those words because your words sometimes is your destiny. So when you say like good luck, there is no luck if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. When you say things like, oh, what a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. Maybe you saw that person on the MTR because God wanted you to meet them. Maybe I'm in the elevator, you're in the elevator, it's just you and me, mano a mano, and we're like, what's up? There might be a reason. That's why when you think about your life, every single morning you wake up and you go through the day, whether you're a student and you go to your classes, you're walking on campus, whether you are a working person and you go to work, anything that happens in that day, I'm telling you right now, it is not a coincidence. Now, that doesn't mean God caused it per se, because people might sin and do things against you. But even then, God in His sovereignty is able to use that to somehow make you more like Jesus Christ. How many of you in this room have experienced something that was outside of your control? And you're wondering to yourself, God, why? I think the worst is when you have very high hopes for something and you feel like you're about to do it or receive it and all of a sudden it doesn't happen. Many of you know that feeling. There's a sense of like someone punched you in the gut. You might even cry and wonder to yourself, God, why, why is all this happening to me? But can I just encourage you? We serve a God that does not make mistakes. Can I get a good amen to that? Amen. We serve a God that knows exactly what he's doing. Because the way he looks at it is he wants you over here. And sometimes he might want you over here in about a year or two years from now. So in your free will, you're choosing different things on a given day in terms of decision. And if you're hearing God's voice and you're obeying him in submission to his will, you will get to point B. Now, one of the things that I've learned is that the easiest way from A to B is to go to A and B. But if you're like me and many of us in this room, we like to go through A prime, A1, A2, and a little bit of A3. And then we slowly get to B, B prime. And we, we kind of traverse through a life, sometimes making some dumb choices. But guess what? Even though we get to choose... God is still a sovereign. He will bring different people. He will bring certain circumstances or certain things will be happening in your life. Then God's going to say, I'm going to use that to help them to get to be. You have to believe in the precision of Jesus Christ and the way he works in your life. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever gone through something and you look back like, oh my God, that's like great timing. It's like God was in control. You guys know what I'm talking about? When you look back and you think to yourself, in that moment when you were in time, you were thinking to yourself, why God, why? But then after many years later, you look back and you realize it was that experience that actually shaped you to be where you are in the future. That's the precision of Jesus Christ. That's why I think we have to ask ourselves all the time, do we fully trust God? Because we know that He is good, He's present with us, and that He is sovereign, which we use GPS, that He will guide you 
and lead you if you know that he is good, he is present with you, and that he is sovereign, he is in control of all things. Psalm 18 verse, or chapter 18 verse 30 in the New Living Translation says this, and say the yellow part with me uh, out loud. It says this, God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. So God's way is perfect. And that everything that he does, he will be proven to be true. Because that's his promise. He doesn't fail on his promise. Here's another verse that the Israelite people knew very well. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 3 and 4, it says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of what? Faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is the word of God. This is what he tells us about who he is and what he does. So we see the precision of Jesus. I want to secondly talk about the prophecy of Jesus through the story. So once again, we're talking about possessing this right expectation because sometimes when our expectation is not in line with God's heart, we're going to get disappointed. So that sometimes the things that we're passionate about, it's really our own passion with God never in the equation. And that's going to lead to disaster. And so we have to make sure that we possess the right expectation. And part of having the right expectation is to know the precision of Jesus in all his ways. It is perfect. And he's going to be proven to be true in everything he has promised. The second thing that I want to mention, as I did, is the prophecy of Jesus. Why is this important? I want to go ahead and read verse 7 through 11 to help us to see this. Going back to the book of Mark. And this is what happened. And they, the two people who were sent out by Jesus, brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What I want you to quickly notice here is that this part of the scripture is that it was very prophetic and also there was a lot of imagery about Jesus Christ being the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It is very clear that there are direct fulfillment of some of these prophecy in the Old Testament. The fact that things that happened pointed to the, to the truth that Jesus was this one and only King. Let me give you some of the things so you could understand it. I want to highlight it for us. The first is the spreading of their cloak on the donkey as well as on the road. You will also notice a placing of branches on the road. Another thing that we notice in that passage that we read is the shouting of Hosanna in the highest. Why are these things important? Because in the Old Testament, we see that some of these actions were associated with the Messiah who would come as this conquering king and establish a new kingdom. So when the conquering king comes back from war, or if he's going to come and overtake this place, he will be riding on a horse, 
or some kind of animal. And then they would be laying down branches to say how worthy this person is. And then they would shout out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The reason why this is important is because when the people at this time, they were getting ready to celebrate the Passover. Whenever Passover would come, they would sing Psalm 113 all the way to Psalm 118. In these five psalms, these are the songs that the people will sing during the Passover with the hopes that the Messiah will come. That's why in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, listen to what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. So once again, this is an Old Testament prophecy about a Messiah that's going to come. And here's Jesus, mounted on a donkey, and he's entering into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry. The word Hosanna means, oh, save us now, or Lord, save us. It's used as a shout of praise. So this idea of coming in the name of the Lord shows that Jesus was God's representative and he had all of God's authority because he came in the name of the Lord. So once again, everything is pointing to Jesus Christ being the king as the Messiah. But here's the problem, and I want you to listen to me carefully. They thought that this Jesus was going to completely destroy all the enemies of Israel on earth. The last thing that they had in mind was that he was going to be suffering and crucified and die. Their expectation was that this Jesus, as he's riding this donkey coming into Jerusalem, as they put down branches on the ground, they thought that he was going to be the one that was going to usher in this new kingdom and destroy all the Romans and everyone else. That's why if you fast forward, if you know your Bible, they actually turned on him. Because they said there's no way that he's, gonna, he's the Messiah because Messiah will not die on the cross. See, Jesus had a different plan, which was to obey the Father. God, the Father, had a different plan than what people thought. This is the same way with many of us. So often we think that, oh, I'm going to do this. I feel like God is leading me to this. But if you're very honest with yourself, you realize a lot of it is your self-centeredness and things that you wanted. I'm not saying that God cannot take that and transform you and use it for something that's good. But oftentimes we justify ourselves. We try to do things on our own strength, our own wisdom, and our own power. And somehow we kind of label this kind of thing on it and say, well, God is calling me. God is doing this. And I always challenge me, how do you know? How do you know? And this is where I'm going to tie it in with our relationship seminar. Because oftentimes when you approach a girl and she says, no, I don't think so. And you think she's playing hard to get. And you continue to pursue her. And maybe that will lead to some bad behavior. You could be decided that it's the will of God. But if the other person is not hearing the same voice then what I would say is you got to stand down. 
or we're going to bring the hounds on you, the holy hounds. We're going to talk to you in one of these rooms. And I'm saying this because I know many of you are very young, and this is very important. Do you know that we live in a society of stalkers, predators, sexual predators, pedophiles? There are, there are a lot of people out there, and even though you could think the best of them, we are fallen beings and we're depraved. And I could go on of stories in the 20-some years that we were doing this church, my wife and I, stories of people that we had to call the police to put a restraining order on some people. I didn't want to call the police. I wanted to be the police and go in there and deal with that from, you know, Southside Chicago style. But I'm like, okay, that won't be good. That's not very pastorly. Let me pick up that sheep. Take it somewhere. Talk to that sheep. Bad. That is very bad. Do not do that. I'm just bringing this up because it was an issue that my wife was just kind of mentioning to me after our relationship seminar, and I realized, yeah, like, they're not trying to play hard to get. They're trying to be very direct to you. And oftentimes, ladies, if you're in that situation, please talk to an older sister or talk to me or my wife, and we will try to intervene because we do not want your safety to be compromised. So brothers, unless you and I, there's something I don't know about, like, I don't mind going to a separate room and having a talk and saying, like, that kind of behavior is not really Christ-like. Now, if some of you ladies are playing this flirty game, and it's like, <laughs> no, and all this kind of stuff, then that's not good either. That's why I would say make it very clear, and I would say take some precaution that you don't give them any signs that you're interested. I think one of the things about the church is that we have nice people, and that's where a lot of the pedophiles and a lot of the predators come into the church, to scam people and also to prey on them. Because that's the nature of what we should be as a Christian, to love people, to think the best of them, to give grace and forgive. So that is a perfect environment for a lot of these bad behaviors to happen. And I think some of us are also very naive. I grew up in the streets. So when I see someone, I'm like, dude, man. Some of us, we just grew up in the church and, and we're just hallelujah and everything. And you know, your life was very sheltered. I'm not trying to scare you. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to scare you. But what I'm saying is we got to wake up. When you watch the news, this is, we're living in a crazy place, this place called earth. And apart from Jesus Christ, we don't know what will happen. That is why it is absolutely important as we think through this, that for the safety of our members, can I just say this? Speak up. Can I get a good amen? If something is fishy, something you don't like, something doesn't... You need to speak up. Let me know. Speak up to your leaders. Speak up to other older brothers or sisters. If it's the older brother or sister who are bringing that upon you, talk to some other people. That's why I'm a firm believer. Part of being in a church and being in community is that you cannot hide because there's accountability. Sorry, it wasn't in my notes. I just just wanted to say that just to reassure some of the sisters in our church we got your back and some of you brothers who have ill intentions I think you need to grow up or the hand of the Lord will come down and wake you up because that kind of behavior cannot be tolerated
in our church. I, I just don't think it honors God, nor does it honor that brother or that sister. That's very important. Anyway, blah, blah, next, next. Okay, I took too much time on the other stuff. So what are some of the expectations? Is it in line with God's will? Or is it something that you just justify your own behavior? It has to be consistent with the word of God. I love what John Newton said. He wrote this one time. He said, God often takes a course for accomplishing his purposes directly contrary to what our narrow views would prescribe. He brings a death upon our feelings, wishes, and prospects when he is about to give us the desire of our hearts. I thought that was amazing. That a lot of times we think we got it figured out. We think that this is the will of God. And oftentimes we feel this death of some of those desires and some of those things. We get disappointed. Why? Because God is preparing us for something that's better. That's why you got to trust that God is good, that he's present, and that he's sovereign. Only Jesus can transform our passion so that it will conform to his passion, to his will. Let me close out with the second point. And the second point is simply this. We must not only possess the right expectation, but we must pray with the right expectation. In this next section, there are two things that occurred, but the lesson was on the importance of prayer. And I want to try to weave that in so that you understand. The first thing is that faith is required in prayer. That faith is required in prayer. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read the next portion of Scripture. I'm going to skip over a section to read the next section because those two sections are connected. And the story about the temple and the house of the Lord being the prayer is sandwiched in between the story about a fig that's cursed and about this prayer piece. So let me just read the next part of the Scripture, skip over the middle section there, and then finish off in all the way to verse 25. So listen to what it says. On the following day, so after he comes in, they're all saying Hosanna to God in the highest. It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, we're jumping down now. It's a story. It's the similar teaching. We're skipping over this middle part. I'll come back to it. In verse 20, it says this. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 
Let me talk about this fig tree and why this is important as we're talking about prayer and how it's God who has to transform our passion and bring it to the conformity of His passion. We notice that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem because He left Jerusalem to Bethany and He was waiting there and now He's entering back in. And on His way, He saw a fig tree that was budding. In fact, it says that it was in leaf. What that phrase means is that there were leaves growing off this fig tree, which is a sign of growth, which is a sign of there will be fruits on this tree. Now, it's very important to note that when Jesus, in his hunger, actually went over to the fig tree, he realized that it had the leaf but did not have the fruits. So what did Jesus do? He cursed that tree. So the question is this, why? Why did Jesus do that? And then in verse 20 and later on, the disciples realized, wait, that was the same tree that you cursed. Now it's withered away. And then Jesus talks about prayer. Now the reason why this is important is that Jesus was trying to point out this fact. That this tree had leaves as if they had some of these figs. And I'm I'm guessing some of these figs during that time, it will begin to form, but it had two stages. Let me explain. I had to do some research on this so I can understand it myself. What happened when it grow a fig tree is that oftentimes the leaves will start budding and then there will be this really young fig that's not ripe at all. So usually it tastes bland. Uh, It's not very good to eat. So you got to let it wait a couple months until it's fully matured. And that's when the figs are really, really good. And so what Jesus thought was, oh, there's some leaves, so maybe... There's some fruits on it, but when he looked at it, there were no fruits. The thing that he was trying to teach was that it is really easy to appear or to look like you have something, but in reality, you don't. Who was he talking about? He was talking about the Israelite people. Here are these Israelite people where God has given them avenues to worship God. What was one of the biggest issues that Jesus had with the people of Israel? They had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these religious leaders and the teachers of the law. They were good on the outside, but they were rotting away. Do you remember some of those teaching? He says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Or you're like that cup that's clean on the outside, but the inside you're rotting away. Because what happens is that when you begin to start doing religion... And we heard this at the retreat, is that what we normally start doing is that we start covering up. And we try to appear better than we really are. And that's what happens when you have religion. But when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then what happens is you begin to understand your own brokenness. You begin to understand your own messiness in life. That's why you need a Savior, because you cannot save yourself. Religion says, yes, you can do all these good things. Try not to do this and try to do this. And somehow you can save yourself. And that's what many people are trying to do. You look at every single religion. It is all about trying to earn favor with God. But Christianity is the only religion that says that you can never reach up to God. No matter how righteous you may think you are, no matter all the good things that you do, you cannot reach up to God. Because it is like trying to stand at TST on the harbor and jump all the way over to Admiralty or Wan Chai in one leap. You guys will be like, ha, ha, that is impossible. 
Exactly. That is why even the teachers of the law, if you remember even the stories with Jesus, they go, this is impossible. And he goes, yes, it is. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are what? Possible. If you're trying to save yourself, you are going to lose. Because you cannot. Because of the wickedness of our hearts, the depravity of our hearts. You might do all the righteous things. You might even look good. And everyone says, wow, look at that person. They're such a strong Christian. Look at their prayer. Look at all the stuff that they're doing. They're serving. But in your heart, it is dying away because you're addicted to pornography. You are engaged in certain things. And you're cheating in your taxes, whatever it may be. And you're rotting in your heart. This is the reason why Jesus says that this fig tree, when it's supposed to produce fruit, it is not. But it has the leaves to make it look like it's being fruitful, but there's no fruit. So he cursed it. That's exactly what's happening to the Israelite people. They were given this gift of salvation. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, but they squandered it. So what did Jesus do? He then began to preach, and that's why he was going to die on the cross. It wasn't just going to be for the Jewish people, but it was going to be for the nations, the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish people. That's why after he gave that illustration about the tree, in verse 20 through 24, he explains it as he talks about faith as we pray. This idea of moving mountains, that it, when we pray in faith, we can move mountains. That imagery oftentimes in the Old Testament is used as if there is something difficult before you. There's no way you can move this mountain on your own strength. Only God can do it. That's why we pray to say, God, I cannot do it, but you can. I've said this time and time again. I'm going to say it again. If some of you in this room are very talented, maybe you're very smart, maybe certain gifts that you have, I'm telling you right now, the, the tendency and the proclivity is to trust in yourself because you don't need to pray. You don't need to depend on God because you could do it on your own. And my challenge to you, those of you who are very talented, that's why you got into that school, that's why you have that job. Like, I'm wondering if God is bringing things your way to humble you, to say, God, I cannot do it, but you can't. Some of you have never gotten a B in your life, which is amazing. Some of you have never failed in anything. You put your mind to it and you succeed. That is why when you get your first B, you're devastated. Because you think B stands for bad. So you're like, oh my God, I'm so bad. You don't get that job. You don't get that promotion. You don't get that girl, whatever it is. And your whole life is failing. And I'm telling you right now, not in a very mean or sadistic way, but I'm telling you, it is good for you. It is good for you. Because the more you fail... The more you realize you cannot have everything that you want, even though when you're trying to manipulate situation, what it does, to, it reminds you that you're not God. Turn to someone next to you and say, you're not God. Come on, let them know. Let them know. You are not God. God is God. So that's why we got to pray because as you're going through difficult things in your life, the hard things in life, the mountains that you're facing, 
It is God that we trust. It's God who can do the difficult things. And Jesus was encouraging this extraordinary faith to trust in him and his promises. That's why it says that when you pray and pray according to his will, with this faith, you can move mountains. We must remember that it has to be in accordance to his will. You can't be like, well, it says so, whatever I want. So, Lord, give me that right now, right now. No. Is your prayer in line with God's kingdom? Can, can I just say this? If you pray for lost people and you, you say, God, use me to help someone understand the gospel so they can come to a saving knowledge of you, would he answer that prayer? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. God wants to save people. God, give me a Lamborghini. I feel it in my spirit. Lamb, like, nah, Lamborghini. <laughs> and you don't get it, and you're wondering, God, what is going on here? Because it, it doesn't say anything about that in the Bible. So when your prayers are in line with the kingdom of God, I'm telling you right now, God begins to work. You can trust in Him. The second thing, and lastly, is this. Not only faith is required in prayer, but faithfulness is required in prayer. Let's close out with verse 15 through 19. This is the middle section. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. What is going on here? You have to try to picture this. This was the week and the start and the beginning of Passover. And what is Passover? It is a memorial. It is a celebration of how God delivered the Israelite people from the Egyptians. They were told to put blood over their do doorposts because the, the virus, the coronavirus is going to come. <laughs> and if he sees the blood, which is foreshadowing to Jesus, he will pass over that house and not kill the firstborn son. So that's why in faith they put blood on their doorpost and when that judgment of God came of killing the firstborn, when that judgment was coming and they saw the blood, it would pass over that house and then kill the firstborn of those who did not have the blood. I mean, there's a lot of imagery pointing to Jesus Christ. So this Passover celebration, every single year that they had, was supposed to remember what God has done for them to deliver them from slavery. But it was also a way to celebrate who God is and in His power to even deliver them. This is the reason why you don't just have people in Jerusalem celebrating this, but you have people from all over the world, the known world at that time, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. It is like the expo, the world expo. People were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So I want you to picture this. So in the temple, 
where people would gather and do the worship and all this other stuff, the sacrifices. There were these money changers who were right at that court where it was supposed to be for the Gentiles, those who were non-Jews. Only the Jews could enter into the, the next part of that temple, which was more of the specialized or those who were chosen by God. All the Gentiles can only worship on the outer courts. Now, I want you to picture this. This is where these money changers and people who are selling pigeons and different sacrifices, they were all doing business right there. And the reason is, when these people came from other countries, they needed to change their money of RMB to Hong Kong dollars. So they needed to buy, be able to purchase these animals. They needed to change their money. So they will go to these places that's right near. Even though there were money changers different places, they decided, let's get closer to the temple, then it would be more convenient. And so guess what happened? They were using a place that was for worship, for prayer, as a place to do business. And they were changing the money there. Not only that, some people came from faraway places. That's why they could not carry animals to their sacrifice. So they had to buy it once they got to Jerusalem. And guess what? All this stuff was going on. And so a place that's supposed to be for prayer now became a place of commerce. And the focus on prayer is no longer there. It's all about business. That's why Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7 in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 11, to talk about how his house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Can I just encourage us? Because after he turned over the tables and he says, you're making my house into a den of robbers. This idea of den of robbers is that when the people who are thieves would take all the stuff, they will go to these secret places like a den or a cave and they will keep all of their loot. And he's saying that this place is a house of prayer, but you're doing all this stuff and it is a place now of you mistreating people and forgetting that what we're supposed to do when we gather together is to pray, seek after God. I want to just encourage us as we think about our church. We can be a big church. We can grow. A lot of things happening. Lives being transformed. We've got baptisms, people joining ministry teams. But if our church fails to realize where our source of power and strength comes from, if our church gets too dependent and self-sufficient in ourselves because of our talents or the things that we're doing, and we forget that it's God who's enabling us, then in many ways we're making the house of God into a den of robbers instead of a house of prayer for all the nations. This is my hope and prayer, that whenever someone steps into our church, they can feel the power of God. They can feel the presence of God. It's because there are people in our church who are praying. I pray that we will never be ashamed of being able to pray, even though we are out in public. It's one of the most powerful witnesses when people see you pray. Especially when they're sharing right there in the cafeteria or in the cafe that you say, you know what, can I pray for you right now? Even some of you in the dorms, if you're hanging out with some of your friends, instead of goofing around, maybe one of the things that will help you 
help your life group is that you actually gather together for prayer. Even for some of you who are working, if you know of some other people who are working in the same area, one or two stations away, why don't you say, hey, can we just gather together during lunchtime? We can eat, but let's spend about 10 minutes praying for our church. Let's just pray knowing that there's going to be a lot of transitions coming up. Let's pray for the city ministry. But somehow you sit there as if everything is fed to you and you just consume. You're a consumer and there's no ownership. And I'm going to tell you this and mark my words and I say it again and over again. The more consumers you have and the more you take and you don't have the ownership, that ministry is going to die. I've seen it over close to 30 years of doing ministry. All the ministries that have consumers and all they do is take. They don't know how to give back. They don't know how to invest in that ministry. That ministry will begin to dwindle and it will die. Just look at some of your life groups. Just look at some of your campuses. Look at some of the different ministries that we have in our church. I'm not saying it's all dependent on us because it's not. But I will definitely say this. If you consume, rather than saying, because I'm blessed, I want to be a blessing, and you're willing to go out, sacrifice, lay down your life, so that one more person can come to know Jesus Christ. Unless you have that kind of heart, one of the things that I've seen over and over again is that group, that ministry, that life group begins to implode. Why? Because that is the health of a person in their spiritual walk with God. Is that as God gives unto you, as you receive from God, then you then give to others. Some of you know this illustration I give often. There's a reason why it's called the Dead Sea. And there's a reason why it's called the Sea of Galilee. If you look at the map, you realize it's the Dead Sea because it comes from all these different rivers, but there's no outlet. That's why all these sediments and all these salt and everything just starts collecting into this area. That's why they call it the Dead Sea. But if you look at the Sea of Galilee and any of these other bodies of water that's fresh water, you will notice they always have an inlet and an outlet. And I'm telling you right now, some of you, the way you're operating in your ministry, in your life group, it is like the Dead Sea. You just receive, you just take, and there is no outlet. That is why that ministry is going to suffer. But if you have an outlet and you're saying, God, we want to bless other people. We want to reach out to other people, other families and other co-workers and other students on my campus who don't know Jesus Christ. That is an outlet so that when blessings come in and then it goes out, God will continue to allow it to flow in and you receive more from God. Can I get a good amen to that? I want to encourage us as we think about the passions that God has given you. Don't use it just for yourself. To build your own little kingdom. But use those passions and line it up with God's heart, God's passion to say, God, how can you use me? And the best way is when you're able to possess that kind of right expectation. When you are able to pray with that right expectation. It's God who's going to work. God who's going to move. That's when you will begin to see God working powerfully in your life, in your life group, and in your life stage ministries, and in our church. I pray that will be the case. And therefore, once again, the one thing is only Jesus can transform our passion so that it will conform to his passion. I just have two things I want to encourage you to do this coming week. The first thing is this. Let's passionately place our expectation on God's promises. 
What I mean by that is get into the word and see what God says as his promises and line yourself up with that. If God says so, believe it and place that trust in him. If it's not in scripture or the principles are not there, then you need to repent and say, I'm tired of trying to live for myself. Maybe some of us, our our mindset is all off and we think, why is God doing this to me? Stop asking that question. I think the question should be, God, it's my mindset, it's my heart aligned with what you said that you are and what you do. I know that it's not easy. We talked about lament at this retreat. God's not scared when you tell him, I hate you or God, I don't know. I have all these doubts. He doesn't get frightened by that. He's God of the universe. But what I will say is this. You can lament all you want, but you will never change if you just stay there. Amen? As you pour out your heart, you're supposed to focus on the right things, which is back on God. Who He is, what He said He is, what He said He will do. That's what changes you as you begin to trust in that, put your hope in that. If you put your hope or trust in something that is not clearly given through the Word of God, I'm going to tell you, you're going to get disappointed. That's why I've seen so many people disillusioned, turn away from the church, and their relation with God is just kind of out the door. Because they had all these expectations, and when you really begin to listen to them, you're like, that's not biblical. That's not from, show me where you got that. And they're like, oh. So just make sure that you line up and place your expectation clearly on Jesus and his word. The second thing and last thing is this. Let's passionately pray with this expectant faith. Let's passionately pray with this expectant faith. I don't know about you, but we could be known for a lot of things. And I know there's a lot of things we're not known for. Things that we could continue to improve. But I will say this. If we can somehow be known as a church that prays, like everything, the, the lighting, it just every, it could be horrible, but I would say at least God still works. It was kind of funny because I was in a conversation this week with, uh, we're trying to get a band for the Arise Asia. We're gathering about 1,500 students from Asia, 48 countries. And I'm thinking, which band can actually hold that kind of crowd? HMCC band? Not yet. In the future, maybe. We're getting there. We're going to hit the right notes, you know? We're, we're getting there. Jesus, I better get off the stage. Uh, and so I started asking some people around about a possibility of a band. And I talked to one person who's very musically really good one of the best I've seen, pianist, classically trained, pastor. And so I said, hey, bro, like, do you know anybody? Do you know any band? And it was so interesting because he recommended several people. I looked, I'm phenomenal. Musically, everything, I'm like, wow. So I was just praying, God, who, who is it that you want me to invite? Because I'm the program chair of this. And so I was just like praying through. And somehow God led me to this person. I go, maybe... I should check this person out. So we had a Zoom call. So we already got um, the awakened generation from Singapore. They're going to be coming. Uh, 
really great band. They ministered in Singapore in one of the conferences I went to. And so this person is from Korea, and we just started talking. And I realized that he grew up in California, uh, lived in Korea in the last, I don't know how many years, but out in Korea. So he speaks both languages well. And we're just talking, and all of a sudden, I was sharing with him, you know, how we want to structure the worship and the praise. And I just said, because when I was younger, I was part of a gospel band. You know, I, I, just, I just kind of mentioned that like, really quickly. And he stopped and he goes, is it Alpha Omega? And I'm just like, who are you? Because that was the name of our gospel band, Alpha Omega. And he goes, yeah, I heard about you guys. <laughs> and I just started blushing because I'm like, <laughs> we were so bad. <laughs> so he asked me, what instrument did you play? And very sheepishly, I'm like, well, yeah, I play the guitar, and I play keyboard. Praise God for my mom forcing me to play for four years. But then my brother and I, we fought who would practice first, so we would be the first one to go out and play sports. So just four years of piano, and then I picked it up further as I became a Christian. But I was just like, we were so bad. We were like really bad. And I, was, I began to share with them my experience. And man, as I was sharing some of our experience, I just said, you know what? I don't know how God used us. Because there's some people on this band, Alpha Omega, who picked up the instrument once they joined the band. Usually you look for people who have the talent, and then you join. But all they look for was people who are crazy enough to give up their lives and all their summer breaks and all their winter breaks just so they could travel around the United States to reach out to the next generation. And we were so bad. And some of you might have heard this before. One person came up and said, man, I'm so blessed by your bass player. I'm like, huh? Because he was the worst. He, he couldn't even know. He didn't know what note to play. So I'm like, huh? He's like, yeah. Because I realized that during some of the slow, he's like always doing this. And then I realized, yeah, he does that a lot. And then this guy said, but I realized something. He was doing this even in the fast songs. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's him. Because he doesn't know how to play. But they will come up and say, this is a retreat. I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. This was a revival meeting or the retreat that I dedicated my life to serving God as a pastor or as a missionary. And when Dr. Steve came, we were sharing some of these stories too. And we talked about how we made these cassette tapes. And for some reason, people wanted it. So we're like, okay, let's make some. So we decided to make hundreds. And the place that we brought it to, it was just a, a Caucasian, just American company. And they genuinely asked us with a pure heart. They were just like, is there a market for this kind of stuff? Because we were so bad. We were bad. But I will say this. And, I, and we said, yes, there is a market for it. Those were all the lives that were transformed at that retreat. We were so bad musically 
But the power of God came because we prayed. You know what we'll do? We'll pray months ahead of time for that retreat. Pray for the people, pray for the place, pray for God's power. We will pray. We'll get to that retreat, and before we lead our praise, we'll pray. After everything's done that night, it's about 11, 1 o'clock, or 12 o'clock in midnight, or 1 o'clock in the morning, and then we will pray. And then we'll get up in the morning with only about three hours of sleep, and we will pray for the rest of that day that's going to happen. And I realized it wasn't us. Trust me, it wasn't us, you know, all the time. It wasn't us. It was the power of God. And the reason why it was the power of God is that we submitted ourselves. We knew that we could not do this on our own. We submitted ourselves to God and said, God, you do it because we can't. And as we were dependent on him, God started moving mountains. As we started depending on him, God started using imperfect vessels like us to touch lives as they were singing these simple songs. Now the songs are complex. There's a bridge, tag one, tag two. You know, there's all this stuff. But back then it's just simple songs with only three chords and we could just sing it from our hearts. And man, I, I get the best view oftentimes when I was leading praise. I looked out and I saw hundreds if not thousands of people just closing their eyes, worshiping God and the Spirit of God came and met us in a powerful way. What would it be like if our church was known as a house of prayer? That anyone who will step in, they'll feel the power of God and the presence of God because we have people in our church who are praying. As I shared before, I'm going to keep on sharing. We're going to go through some transitions as a church. And if some of you just decide to sit around and do nothing, there's a good chance that you might just, you, you it might pass you by. I pray that as we're going through some of these transitions, instead of looking at, oh my God, what's going to happen with this? Like, whenever I hear that, I realize you're not a man or a woman of faith. You trust in yourself. That's one thing I realize. People who are very talented, as I mentioned before, they, they're self-sufficient. They're the ones who are always like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I always tell them, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I knew. But one thing I do know is we pray. Amen. We pray together. We seek after the Lord. We fast, not just in one desire fast, but fast maybe once a week. Pray for these things. Pray for people to be raised up. Pray that our church will be able to advance forward and do the things that He has called us to do. Because we can't do it on our own, but we need Jesus in our midst. And that's what I want us to do to, uh, this morning as we close out. Let us pray and seek God and say, God, do your work. Because we're going to enter into this month of Lent. We're going to enter into Good Friday, the Passion Week with Easter. Man, there are so many things coming up and we need Jesus. We need Him more than anything else. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.